This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Welcome to a wine show on St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) That's us, always relevant. (laughs) Well, at least for today, we're going to try to be a little relevant. You brought beer today? No, darn it. Why didn't I think of that? Oh, man. Well, but actually today, we're going to talk about beer, wine's cousin and friendly rival. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today, we'll look at the crazy hot supernova that's craft beer and how it connects to wine. Our questions from listeners include a few related to beer including what has more calories, beer or wine. We have a few horrible beer reviews. I looked some up. And uh, we want you to know that beer people can write badly, too. And we have some wisdom from one of history's greatest beer drinkers. That would be Cliff Clavin of Cheers. Excellent. Plus, we'll make fun of wine and beer snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today, since St. Patrick's Day, we've caught a leprechaun. <laughs> no, we did not. You're right. I made that up. <laughs> but, and we good to have a leprechaun in the studio. But we are going to talk about a new gold rush of sorts, if that's, uh, oh, if that's a connection of any way. It's not. But we're going to talk about craft beer. And well, also a little bit about how it's affecting wine. Okay, that's that's good. Although, um, kind of a weak transition there, Rick. Let's just get into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what happens when I try to be cute like a leprechaun. All right, my, I had another joke about a leprechaun, and it uh, it involved walking into a bar, and it doesn't did he, really work. Did he hurt his nose? Yes, that's right. Exactly right. Uh, the bartender asked him why long, the long face. I that's see. The, that's the horse joke for anyone's out there. Right back to craft beer. Oh, let's talk about that because... Crap beer actually is hot, and, um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, is, it is affecting the wine world in some good ways and some not-so-good ways, um, but it, it's affecting a lot of things. Um, right now, and I know this because actually I just wrote a long piece about craft beer for one of the newspapers that I write for, hmm. um, and uh, right now craft beer is about 8% of all beer sales uh, in volume, but about 14% of the value in terms of the market. So it's not huge, but it is getting a lot of attention. Well, and it's the part of the market that's growing. The right. uh, mainstream beers are not growing, and the craft beers are growing. Mainstream is down, actually. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, craft beer is up by um, large percentages and and, yeah. and mainstream is down especially those those old school beers yep. um, and you know it's also got some wine wine folks nervous you know uh, John Fredrickson was here at unified a month or so ago a couple months ago now mm-hmm. wine market council had a report uh, recently those are both folks who an- groups and an- folks who analyze the market mm-hmm. should they be nervous about it well yes and no I mean to me to me the excitement about craft beer is that it shows that people are looking for things that taste good to put in their mouths mm-hmm. that seems to me to be a good news uh, story for the wine business I'm always looking for good things that taste good there you go and so craft beer is one of those things I think if people continue to be curious and look for good things to, to taste then they're going to enjoy craft beer and wine I certainly do you do. I don't think we need to take the position that if you like beer, you can't like wine or vice versa. I think all of this stuff tastes good, and every every meal has a, have a has at least one and maybe two or three different perfect combinations for it. Let's drink them all. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I found out in calling around, talking to uh, restaurateurs, uh, mm-hmm. wine shop guys, beer shop guys, everything in between, um, some of the big supermarkets that carry a lot of the higher-end wines and beers, 
Um, and they're, they all thought the same thing. And this this is not uh, it, this is in no way condescending, but it, it they they thought that it was in essence the gateway drug to wine. Which is not that they're going to stop drinking beer when they grow up and drink yeah. wine, but that that in essence they lead both ways. That in fact, wine is the gateway drug to beer too. Well, and see, I have a theory that Starbucks is the gateway drug to both of those because remember when I was growing up, we had two drinks. We you could either drink Coke or Pepsi. When my kids were growing Diet up, Diet Cola. My kids were growing up, they could taste a hundred different kinds of coffee from all over the world with all different flavors, all different kinds of milk and sugar and cream and everything else added to it. Paul, your kids are way cooler than you. You know that. (laughs) They always are. (laughs) But the point is they grew up thinking that beverage was a way to explore the world. And that generation is now drinking beer, it's drinking wine, and it's exploring, and it's a wonderful thing. And with excitement. And, you know, it's the thing, um, one of the things that, you know, talking to lots of folks, but also, you know, being around town here in, in Sacramento in the Bay Area a lot because I'm yep. also down in the city and in your part of the world in Napa where food is a big deal. You know, is that folks are um, it just is part of the dining and the going out and the nighttime experience now, which is it's another way to uh, to sort of like you said to pay attention to what you're eating and drinking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things uh, and wine could learn something from beer. And it's uh, what's funny is that in some ways beer is advertising itself like wine. You know, now there's all this really sophisticated. They're talking about techniques. We have some writers here that are writing about yes. beer that are just as bad as any wine Yes, writer. yes. You know, uh, but I was uh, actually um, went out to happy hour with a friend last night, and we just mm-hmm. had a beer mm-hmm. at one of the local brew pubs, and the descriptions were now all about, you know, it's it was uh, it was an ale brewed like a lager with the, you know, they're right. talking about they're the They're teaching technique. you how to make a piano so yes. that you can listen to the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but there is also something about beer that wine could have learned, and some of the wine, wine companies do learn this, was that getting into beer seems easier. It's because beer in general has less of that snob attitude. There's more a sense that beer is fun, and you should have fun with it. And so I think, yeah. There the, now, to be fair, there are wine companies that do this yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a it's a good thing. Well, there's other parts of it. I mean, one the heck, getting the bottle open is a little easier. For some of them, well, you know, that, I still get the ones that don't have the don't have the uh, easy opening cap, and you still got to, yeah, yeah. And then, well, then there's you know, and there's there's beer with corks now, and and yes. but it does seem you know, and it seems like um, it it seems like if you didn't know anything about beer and you're saying I'm going to have a craft beer, it seems simpler. You know, there's sort of light beer and dark beer and maybe IPA. Now, the truth, of course, is that there's Many shades, infinitely in complicated, but and it, then you get into all the stuff where people are add, adding flavorings yeah. and all the rest, and it's a pretty yeah, and and, little... and doing it with yeast. But but sort of the yeah. assumption is, I think another part of it is is that although it's, this is changing as well, you know, the for a very long time the wine industry felt, and you still see people who say this that it it's our responsibility to educate our customers, they'll so they'll buy our product, right? Well, you know, that's sort of backwards. It's you should you know you should bring your product so that your customers will feel happy buying it. It's not right. the other way around. Right. And beer is starting to get that way. Oh yeah, it you is. Know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, wor- I worry a little bit for beer. when they start telling you about exactly where the hops came from and exactly handful how many handfuls of hops handcrafted went, by the way handcrafted beers. That's right. Yeah. Yep. We're right back to where we started again with the wine. Yeah. The other thing that is um, is very apparent, and and you know this being a guy who knows the wine industry really well and and doing this story and you know, was the question I asked a lot and it came up exactly why, which is that right now it's a really young market. And mm-hmm. so people are sort of experimenting, and there's all these little folks that are making beer. 
But the but a lot of them are going to run into the same problem that a lot of wineries run into, which is the distribution network. Right. The pipeline's only right. so large. Yeah, there is a difference. There is a huge difference in the business model between a winery and a brewery, which is you can make beer anytime you need to make beer. Exactly right. So you can make a little bit of beer and sell it and get the money and buy the raw material and make a little more beer. And you can do that as many times as you want. With wine, you have to buy a lot of stuff right up front, and then you use that equipment at harvest for about six weeks, and then it sits there, and you can't make any more wine. You're done. Until the next harvest comes around, you can't make any more. So it's actually a much easier, simpler business model than wine is. But it also makes beer a less celebrational beverage because right. you don't drink. Uh, when your daughter graduates from college, you don't drink a beer from the year she was born. You drink a bottle of wine because it captures not only a sense of place but also a sense of time. Although nowadays, you actually some people are aging beers, all not not. For the Not 20, that long. 21 years. Right. Um, you know, well, there's the other part of it that, and this is, this tells us a little bit about where the um, the beer market will go, is that, you know, beer has a certain advantage in that, you know, brew pubs are, are pretty popular and they're an yep. easy way to sell your beer. It's a it's little- like a tasting room. Yeah. It's it, like a winery tasting but room. But except that it's a little, it's a little less complicated because you're selling every glass of beer. You, you are know? indeed. So, you know, that part of it is, um, but the problem is, and like you said, with for wineries, you know, the wineries sort of need to get into the distribution pipeline for beer, which means is distributors would tell you, and some of them told me, you know, we're only going to take guys, men or women. And any brewers who can supply us sure. with enough beer. Sure. And then the, the store folks said in this world that we have now, which everybody tr- wants to try something new, the problem is not selling the beer the first time. It's selling it again. The second time, third time, fourth right. time. Right. And so, so yeah. only so many are going to grow large. And what may happen, this is what the prediction a lot of folks have, is that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's going to be a whole, which is not a bad thing. Beer is going to be regional. A bunch of sure. small, you sure. know, craft breweries. Well, and, and then you know. and then bear in mind the other thing that happens is in the wine industry as well. If you look at the top ten selling wine brands in America, about half of them weren't around ten years ago. So it's the same kind of thing that people are looking for new adventures, and they'll continue to do that both in beer and in wine. And it goes back to the that old thing: if you really want to be if you really want to be successful in the American beverage market, you'd better be light on your feet. I thought you were going to say if you wanted to make a small fortune, you start with a large one. And then watch it slowly melt away. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. But uh, So so we do, to, to sum up, beer, the craft beer movement has got some energy left in it for absolutely sure. Yes. And and ultimately... We and some of, delicious products. And some delicious products. I mean, I think that's the other part of it, too, is that there's just a lot of great beer out there. Yep. And, and I think really for, for the wine world, I think it's healthy for the wine world, too, if you ask me. Yep. Me too. All right. Well, this is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we'll take some questions about wine and beer. Stay with us. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And it is time to open our mail slot. Our mailbag. We've had we've been questioned. We've been questioned about what we call it, but we are taking <laughs> questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, we can answer that. And you can go to rickandpaul.wine, uh, rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. Also look for us on iTunes. Our first question comes from, and this is a friend of mine, but it's a really good question. Um, he says it's Chris Miller in Sacramento. And he says, "Are there corkage fees for beer?" Well, because beer is capped. 
there would be cabbage fees. Cabbage fees, although there are some corked, uh, some yes. corked twenty twos, the bombers they call them. So yes. I actually called around. I called around yeah. a bunch of my restaurant folks, and you know what was interesting was it, it's really across the board. Some of the more expensive restaurants, a couple of them in San Francisco, say they charge full price, a full corkage, which could be twenty five dollars for a beer. For for beer wow. corkage, the theory was, and we've talked about this in the past, yep. that you know alcohol is a big part of, of yep. their presentation and their profit margin. Yep. And um, a bunch of folks all over Northern California, and these were, it's where I called, said, we haven't run across that bridge yeah. yet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but their, their sense was, it was now and then, they're not going to bring it up, they'll let it go. Yeah. But, but the majority said, you know, I think we're going to do it, we'll, we'll charge half. Half of what a wine corkage fee mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm, yeah. So if you're a twenty-five dollar place, it might be yep. twelve fifty. If I mean, you're twenty, it's ten. Yeah, I I appreciate that you absolutely want to drink that bottle of beer, but geez, just you know, order something off the list. Well, you know what? What a lot of these guys said that they see happening, and this is because this is the beer fanatic, and and you know, right. and, and props to them is that they bring in like four or five different beers. You know, in a group to share. Right, to share. Yeah, yeah. and and so yeah. Yeah, you know, and these are the, and these are not. This is not once again sort of yep. not the white tablecloth kind of place. A more in between right. restaurant. Right. And most of what the most of what the rest of tours told me or the bar owners said was, you know what, if they think we're the place to do that, we're happy to be that place. Well, that's a good point. I mean, to me, one of the things that's interesting is that corkage fees, f- in general in wine-producing regions are much lower because they know that half the people bringing wine into the restaurant... Just bought it. Or not just bought it. Actually own the winery. Oh, or that, yeah. And are yeah, taking yeah. either yeah. their best customer or Rick Cushman, a famous wine writer, or yeah, their yeah, that's distributor. Right. Take Rick to dinner. They got to pour their wine at that dinner, and they're bringing... And so the restaurant doesn't charge them as much. In fact, many restaurants will tell you that if you have a business card from the winery in Napa, they won't charge you corkage. Beer, it gets a little more complicated because people are making beer everywhere. Right, right, right. So right. I don't quite know how... Although there are certainly lots of local beers. Uh, you well, know, no, that's and, what and I mean. I mean, it, yeah. it, it oh, makes I see what you're saying. sense yeah, yeah, yeah. in Napa yeah. that you would have that, but to do that all over the country, you know, I do like the kind of idea that if you bring in a business card that shows you're the owner of the winery, you don't pay corkage, and the same with a brewery. I mean, that to me, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Bring your own wine, bring your own beer. That's that's it, the, If it really is your wine. Yeah, if it really is, <laughs> you is, made is your it. wine. Yeah, but it's interesting, and I suspect, you know, the one of the things that's changed in the beer world, too, is the bombers, you know, the 22-ounce bottles right. of, of beer. Um, which is close to the, the, close to the, the size, size of, which yeah. is 25 ounces, basically, yep. and, um, and a size of a bottle of wine, which we didn't finish the sentence because we knew what we were talking about. It's, uh, <laughs> but, you know, and so the difference, though, is that you drink one bottle of wine will, will satisfy a table of two or three people, where one bottle of beer is, you know, it's, you drink more beer, it's, you know, and in any case... So it, it the formula is a little different, right. but um, and right. I know it's it's sort of an interesting navigational issue for restaurants. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then what do you do with the guy who brings in his homemade beer? Yeah, that's the winemaker guy again. You know, well, but uh, yeah. if it's homemade, it's actually it just just so you know, Rick, it is illegal. You can't bring you can't bring your. If you make wine or beer at home, you're entitled to make up to a couple hundred gallons of wine, for example. Yeah. But you cannot take it off your property. I did not know that. So you're, if you, someone makes wine at home or beer, they're not supposed to bring it to a restaurant. It's actually technically illegal. So the home winemaker is not legally allowed to take the wine off of the home winemaker's right. property? That's Can't right. bring it to his neighbor next down That's the street? That's right. 
can invite his neighbor over but can't take it to the neighbor's house. So uh, when we have the, because uh, I'm the chief judge for the California State Fair's home winemaker competition. That's right. And you they're, probably, they're, I know in Napa, there there had to be a separate piece of legislation to allow uh, the home winemaking competition to happen mm-hmm. because the federal government stepped in and said it is illegal to take homemade wine off the premises how can you have a wine competition for all the people who make wine at home? Well, in case um, we... In case you're not here next week, I'll explain to people what happened. I, I was going to say, in, in case we don't have that permit, we're not having it this year. Never mind. <laughs> no, I, was just, I was just joking. Wow, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Yep. You, see, you learn things when you listen to us. Well, I learn. <laughs> all right. This next one comes from Stephen Aguilera in Ramon. San Ramon, excuse me. San uh-huh. Ramon. Yeah. Uh, East Baytown. It's been pretty warm pretty early in Northern California. How's that going to affect wine? Well, that's a good one. Um, that's actually a wine question. But uh, but he's right. It has been early. It has been warm early. And dry early. And dry early. Yep. And it's, it's um, you know, the last couple of seasons, the wine seasons have actually done a little bit well because it's been an early bud break, but mild summers, so they got hang time. Well, and mild springs because you don't want, what you don't want is the early bud break and then a heavy frost. You don't want early bud break and then a hot summer because all of that puts the vine under a lot of stress and it cranks the grapes out too quickly. So the answer to the question is we don't know. We're going to have to wait and see, which is why farming is such hard work. Yeah, yeah. It is, what, it, what it does mean for the wine world, by the way, is that um, they're, they're, they're nervous. They're nervous. They're nervous out That's there. Right. They, are, they have their fingers crossed. They, they want what they're also completely afraid of is that, um, I mean, they do want more rain. But they want it now. They don't right. want it in May. No, that's right. It, it would really well. In really fact, in May to... you're in you're in bloom, and if it rains during bloom, you lose a bunch of your crops. Right, so, yeah. right. The the phrase they use is shatter, and it what it, it's it's a technical term, but really what it means is their hopes are shattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We have a lot more questions, including questions about beer. We will get to them in the second half of the show. Uh, one of them includes what has more calories, beer or wine? I like that question. Good. Um, and if you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, proof that you can find bad writing from every type of critic, even beer critics. <laughs> we'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yes, yes, it is time indeed for some really horrible beer writing this week. Uh, and it's sad to say there is some really horrible beer writing yes, out there. Yes, there is. Yeah. It's just as bad as wine writing. Yes. You, you want to start or you want me to start? Go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I got one here that says, here's, here's what you're supposed to put in your mouth, Rick. Something about, about that meets this description. <laughs> Bourbon and sour notes on the nose, aged for 10 to 12 months in a barrel from Ironweed, a local distillery. Ginger, mm-hmm. coriander, lemongrass, and bitter orange peel on the palate. Echoes of a sorghum-based <laughs> brew, like but less West Coast influence. Well, the yeah. sour notes rise in a Britannomyces lactobacillus sort of way. <clears throat> well, yeah, you wouldn't want West Coast influence on that, would you? What, I don't want Britannomyces either. Sorghum-based brew? You know, oh, when Lordy. I was a kid, we always used to play a game. We'd drive down the highway, and growing up in California, you see everything growing on the side of the road. I mean, you've sure. every, we are the garden capital of the planet. We would drive along and we'd identify the crop. 
And when we, after everyone in the f- car took a guess and couldn't figure out what it was, <laughs> you know what it was? It's sorghum. Sorghum. Yeah, yeah, Must yeah. be sorghum. Gotta be sorghum. Sorghum, by the way, it's it's um, it's a wheat-looking thing that grows on top of grass. It's right. a tall grass, like, and right. it's is used for many things, including some syrups and 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 for feed. Um, uh, the, I like the ginger, coriander, lemongrass, and bitter orange peel. That actually makes me think of Indian food. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. But I don't want the Britannomyces and lactobacillus no, in my mouth. No. And he, he, the writer said that and, like it was good. I have yeah. no idea what West Coast influence is. I, I'm guessing it is like the East Coast, West Coast rapper feud. Could the, be. The beers, they're mad at Could each be. other. They're mad and, at each yeah, other. So. If they meet in a the street, they, I've, uh, I've, I've heard they get down. All right. Well, I've got what another do you one. Got? I, this is another, it's like, to try to stay on top of this. Malt character with perhaps some rye spiciness balanced with a dank hop bitterness. Mm. Dear Lord, that's my comment. The beer begins with bitterness on the tongue. Next comes orange juice concentrate and sticky resiny hop bitterness. It begins to dry up as it reaches the apex when the malt takes control and creates some cracker-like character. It climaxes with a spicy sensation similar to rye or garlic. As it goes down, there's a taste of orange popsicle, honey, and pale malt. Dear Lord. Yeah. That is... I was uh, hoping we could get a beer. Yeah, that doesn't sound like anything. It doesn't sound like anything you would drink. But how is similar to rye or garlic? They're not all that similar. It's such one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I always hate when I'm... You know, I'm, I'm doing a stir fry and I accidentally chop up the rye instead of the You chop up the, the rye and put it in the stir fry. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh, geez, an orange popsicle? Mm. All right. Um, but I do need to, uh, I need to point out that there's also some good beer writing out there because I don't want to make it sound like we're just beating them up. So I did Why find, not? We do that with wine people I know, but week. we also say nice things about them, some of them. Some of them. Sometimes. Anyway, I ran across a description from a guy named Chad Polenz. He writes a beer blog from Albany, for the Albany Times Union in New York. Good. Okay. Um, and, and I read, actually, a handful of his descriptions, and I liked, it made me see the beer, which is what uh-huh, we always ask. Uh-huh. We made, and and right. what he does, he sort of takes you through a journey. So here's what he says. The first taste I notice is sweet milk chocolate. Beers of the style tend to have a strong red grape flavor. And while that taste is present here, it takes a backseat to deeply roasted malt and coffee flavor. There's some alcohol warmth as it finishes, but it actually complements the palate quite well. Okay. You can see that beer. I I I drink a glass. Yeah. And and so this is this is the lesson really. It's a lesson for wine writers. It's a lesson for beer writers. It's the lesson for people who listen to us which is <laughs> don't listen to No. It is that, you know, don't don't overdo it. Right. You know, we, what we are all looking for is to recognize what's in that glass. Right. It's not to decompress or decompose every time. You don't want to decompress it either, deconstruct. but deconstruct, deconstruct every little little nuance of it first because, as you and I say all the time, everybody's going to taste something different. Well, the, yeah, but the other problem is you've got people, if you had to write 100 wine descriptions a week, you'd sound like an idiot, more than an idiot. Than well, I sound write. like an idiot and I don't I, even I, have to I, write I, 100 You know, a week. I set that up way too easy. <laughs> But if you had to write 100 wine descriptions a week, you'd sound like an idiot. So would I. I feel sorry for these people. But to me, the answer is write less. Right. Focus on what you really like. Right. And tell us in words that everybody can understand why they should like this as well. Yeah, yeah. And and what's you know what was interesting, and I have to say, in in uh, in reading around to find some of these, um, you know, is that I found that much of the beer writing, there is still that 
as you always say, that how you know you don't need to know how to make a piano to right. go to a concert, and there was a right. lot of that going on. But there was also a lot of that not going on. There was less uh-huh. so far in the beer world than there are in the just wine world. Just a question of time. It's right? probably just, just a question, a question of, time. of time. Yeah, we. Um, I worry. I worry for them all. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I think that, uh, and ultimately, what we, maybe what we should do is we should have like beer writers and a beer writer wine writer challenge. We'll have a couple of wine writers do beer descriptions and have some beer writers do some wine descriptions and see what they come up with. That would be fun. Yeah, that yeah, would be fun. Yeah, and you and I, of course, won't write anything, so that no. we can sound we can sound like we are the wise and, and we can take pot shots from the outside. That's that's it's what we do. That's what we that's, do. That's our style. You, that's right. Well. We will have more pot shots in the second half of the show. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes. Subscribe for free with one little itty-bitty click. When we come back, we'll have more listener questions and some wisdom from Cliff Clavin. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are once again moving back into yesteryear for our historic history moment. And in keeping with our theme, there's a bit of beer in the mix. Yeah, there is. Yeah, so I got some beer. I got some beer, but you go first. You know, there there is a theory, actually, that the whole birth of civilization is due to beer, that it was beer that actually encouraged our early hunter-gatherer ancestors to settle in one place so they could harvest the grain, let that grain germinate, and then let some yeast get in and turn it into beer. And it may be, you can make bread with grain anywhere you want. You can drag that grain around. What keeps you in one place is getting that that grain germinated and, right. and all of that process. Right. That's, a, that's a heavier equipment, more got to stay in one place kind of process. And there's a theory that that's what ultimately led us to give up hunting, give up gathering and start farming because we wanted a good bottle of beer at the end of the day. Yes. It makes them sound like good party animals, so to speak, doesn't As it? As it were. Yeah. We, sh- we should point out that it, that makes a- absolute sense. And one of the reasons why was because even our early ancestors realized that if the water wasn't running, that they couldn't drink it, and so that yeah. something that was fermented actually was well, so much safer. Much safer, and this right? was eight, ten thousand years ago. Right, figured that out. Yes, it's why I don't bother drinking water anymore; just nope. beer and wine. That's right. Yes, yeah. Well, and coffee. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have one too. Uh, you know, as we said, eight, ten thousand years ago, among the things, beer spoiled faster than wine, actually, because it has no acidity. It has no acidity. Exactly right. Yeah. And so uh, it was for centuries and centuries of making beer, and it was. They discovered uh, something that actually did help it as a preserve, and it's our little friend, the hop. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it took a while. In fact, I did a little research on this because I am that kind of guy. The first recorded history of hops, at least according to some reputable sources beyond Wikipedia, <laughs> was in 1822. It, was, it came in Picardy, and that's northern France, the Benedictine Monastery. We have mentioned the go. Benedictines in the See, past. Those monks, yeah, man, yeah, monks they were involved. The best evidence that people started using hops in any sort of commercial venture to make beer uh, into something they could sell and store and travel with in great deal right. comes in Germany right. in you know the 1100s, the 1200s. But it also made beer tastier. That was one of the other problems that beer not only spoiled quickly, it wasn't all that good. Wine was much more prized. Right. When the hops came around, 
just a little bit like our craft beer movement, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. hops started to rival in the Middle Ages uh, and you know up into through the Renaissance, started to rival uh, wine for the, although it was always considered the poor person's drink. Well, but it was also Northern Europe because, of course, Northern Europe. Right, grapes right, right. won't get ripe in Northern Europe. So you had to have something that was an alternative to wine because grapes, you know, except for some warm regions of the Rhine River, it won't get ripe in Germany, Poland, Sweden, those areas. So they had to be looking at beer. Right. But what you're telling me is that the beer they paid those poor guys who built the pyramids didn't taste very good. So not only are they only working for beer, they're working for bad beer. They're working for bad beer. You know, it is it is one of the you know we talk about this a lot about how you know I know it's I make the joke and it's sort of true is that you know alcohol was what fueled Western civilization. So much of what happened before Louis Pasteur and Uh and learned how to sterilize water um, happened uh, with a slight buzz. But a slight buzz, uh, a slight buzz. There but but at the same time, you know, seemed like a good it, idea. It at the wasn't time. drinkable for very long. One of the reasons that wine, I mean, wine came out once a year, like you said earlier. So right. it was something worth celebrating. But another reason why the so the harvests were so celebratory wasn't just that all this food was coming out, but also that the wine was good at the time. Right. And although wine has alcohol, higher alcohol and higher acidity than beer, so it won't actually spoil. It does oxidize. It, ox- it tastes vinegary. And so happens. it tastes old and tired. Fairly right. soon, and, and so yeah, and as you said, and the wines in southern Europe and in warmer climates had more sugar in them, yes. so they actually stayed uh, decent longer, and, right. and the sugar in them helped mask the leading vinegary. to tawny port, leading to tawny. That's there you go, yeah. All right, and now comes da, da, another da, da, da. part of history. Well, another part of history. Our man Cliff Clavin. The classic Buffalo theory and beer. I'm yes. going to have to read this. I can't do a Boston accent. I can't really do any accent. <laughs> well, at least you know that so that you're not going to try. I do know that, so I'm not going to try. So I'm just going to read this. But this is a quote from Cheers. Well, you see, Norm, this is our man Cliff. It's like this. A herd of buffalo can only move as fast as the slowest buffalo. And when the herd is hunted, it's the slowest and weakest ones at the back that are killed first. This natural selection is good for the herd as a whole because the general speed and health of the whole group keeps improving by the regular killing of the weakest members. Mm -hmm. In much the same way, the human brain can only operate as fast as the slowest (laughs) brain cells. Excessive intake of alcohol, as we know, kills brain cells, but naturally it attacks the slowest and weakest brain cells first. In this way, regular consumption of beer eliminates the weaker brain cells, making the brain a faster and more efficient machine. Machine. That's why you always feel smarter after a few beers. <laughs> Is that why I'm also better looking? You are. You, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons from The New Yorker, which shows two Stone Age men, and one guy is holding this sort of stone goblet full of wine, and he says, I don't know what to call this stuff, but it makes everything I say sound profound. <laughs> that is exactly right. That is it. Well, Cliff Clavin had an answer for everything, and um, <laughs> but the, the man certainly knew his beer, and I am not going to disagree with you, Cliffy. Awesome, awesome. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, more questioners from listen listeners, a little more beer talk too. And next week, uh, asking that question, that could be you. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are going back to our mail. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And do not forget, you can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free, one little bitty click. 
are we have actually two questions from Renee Tipton, and they come in a different order. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read okay. them first because one okay. one yeah. leads to our uh, our advertised question, but this one is actually aimed at wine at first. I thought you were gonna say our advertisers, but we don't have any advertisers. Soon, soon, my friend. If we keep talking, we'll just keep talking <laughs> about new products until we get one. I think next week we're doing mayonnaise. Excellent. <laughs> this is from Renee Tipton in Walnut Creek. I actually saw this, and so I am so with her. Okay. One of the morning shows had their wine expert on to tell us good wines for a diet. You know, I was like, this is you know, this is me now saying, I'm one of those guys that I'm flipping channels in the morning, right. and I see there's going to be some wine person on one NBC you, or a CBS. You got to check it out. I check it out, right. Yeah. So I saw this. This is Renee again. She was so cute and perky, and then gave just one actual wine brand that I can't find. Not like a category or a grape or something. Right. So the, are there some kinds of wines that are better for a diet or lower calorie? Feel free to be cute and perky if you can answer this. Yeah. Well, you be cute and I'll be perky. Okay. Well, I am cute. So there you, <laughs> you know, we actually answered a question like this uh, about a month or so ago. Somebody asked us about this. So we know. Right. We know that alcohol has seven calories per gram. Right. Sugar, only four. Right. So in really simple terms, the lower the alcohol, the lower the the calories in the wine. That's right. Even if it's a little sweet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I did uh, do a a little looking up on some um, some wines and some of their calorie counts just to know. Yep. So this, I'm talking about a six-ounce pour. So this is actually a very generous restaurant pour. It's one quarter of a bottle. That's a, that's a big pour. It's a big pour. So that's these, are, these pour. are slightly high numbers. You, yeah. Normally, if you're pouring at home, you're probably going to pour in the four to five range. It's just it's Unless just you're instant. drinking out of one of those glasses the bucket with no that stem. I use. That's yeah. right. And yeah. then you're just filling yeah. her up. Me. So the really lighter wines, this would be like a Riesling or something that has the below 10% alcohol. Right. Uh, 95 to about 100. Well, this list that I looked at, but I, I actually disagree with the, long, the higher number. It's more like 95 to 120 calories per glass. Okay. The sparkling wines, and they, a lot of the sparkling wines advertise their uh, calorie count, which is an interesting, some of the really big brands. Well, it's because sparkling wines generally are lower in yes, alcohol than still yes, wines. Yes, because they so are lower in alcohol. They're, they're like 12% or right. so. And so those are... Drink champagne, lose weight. Is yeah, that what you're saying, Rick? Yeah. I, it's Look, you, you look classy, you feel classy. That's right. That's why they serve it in those skinny glasses. There you go. So you can match your glass. <laughs> and they average around 125. Uh, they can be a little okay. higher. Um, you know, sometimes they can be a little higher alcohol, a little sweeter, but really about 125, 135 per glass. Your basic standard glass of wine, um, maybe closer to 175 to 200. So that's a Chardonnay, Merlot, something like that. Yes, and then those big, giant alcohol wines like a big Zin. Yep. Or it could be a big Cab, too, but those wines that are up in the 15s to 16s, it's closer to 220. Hmm. Um, And then the dessert wines... Even though there's this, it's not the sugar. It's, it's the remember higher, the higher alcohol. alcohol. They could be twenty percent alcohol. Right. So a three ounce glass of say a lovely tawny port that you and I always right. talk about, two hundred twenty to two hundred sixty calories. But now compare that to the same size glass or even a six ounce glass of Moscato d'Asti, which is also a sweet wine mm-hmm. but is not fortified. The alcohol is only about five percent. Right. right, right, right. And that would be way down in the hundred. Well, and like this, that was the question we got, which what is higher in right. calories, the the light alcohol sweet wine like a Riesling right. or a, a Moscato yep. yep. or um, the big one? And the answer is it's the big alcohol. It's it has the more alcohol. Calories. Right. So the alcohol real, has more calories than sugar. So, Renee, the real simple answer is the lighter the wine, really, the lighter the alcohol. And right. so that's one thing you can find on the bottle. This is yep. the, the ABV. Yep. Um, that is alcohol by volume. Uh, and, you know, if you're down there in 12% or under, you're getting a pretty low cal drink. Mm-hmm. All right. And Renee had the second question, and I like this one too. Okay. So this is right on topic. Good. So then, she says, what has more calories, beer or wine? 
Ah, mm. the thing you have to clarify here is that you might have a glass of wine. You will probably have a bottle of beer. Well, I actually have a, I found... You did the math? I found a quote from a doc at the Mayo Clinic. Um, what does he know? He's yeah. for next week when we're talking about mayonnaise. Yes. Um, but we'll get to him in a second because he okay. actually brings up a very interesting, a very good point. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I assumed, to put us in the sand, I assumed we're going out for a drink. So it's the bar pint. It's the 14-ounce okay. pint, yep. which is a bar pint. It's not really a pint, by the way, and we should all be angry about that. Right. Um, and versus uh, a, uh, that, well, six ounce was, I, we're given those lower numbers. So uh, a light beer, you know, that's the the middle light, the Bud Light. And those right. usually come in 12 ounces. So we'll tell you the 12 ounces, that's 95 to 100. So that's so like counts. a light wine. It's like a light wine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the larg, a lager. So now we're into, a, you know, regular beer, 4 to 5%. Right. At, um, at a bottle is about 140 to 180, 190. A 14 ounce, that's the b- bottle, uh, that pint in the, is already, yep. it's already 160 to 225. So that's, as, as, that's, that's at the right top end of wine. That's right there at the big wine. end of the wine, right. Top end of wine. So now you get your ales or your IPAs or these oh, days, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. And that is the, the bar pour would be 190 to 250, 260. Even mm-hmm. a bottle is 160 to 225. Wow. So so now you're, you're really over the top. And then you get, and I love these by the way, Belgium's 6.5 to 9% alcohol. Yep. You know, well, and and the numbers that I found were for 12 ounces, and you know, that's, that's a, once again, that's a big pour at a bar. Sometimes they're 10 ounces. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still, you're over 200 calories and could be as high as 300. And those right. giant IPAs that everybody, those 9%, you know, 22-ounce bottles that you're not going to drink the whole bottle, but right. at 12 ounces, those 9%ers are 260 to 360 calories. Hmm. So remember, we were talking about that the glass of champagne that could right. be as low as 120, and even the big wine is 200. Yep. So the real answer is that wine's going to be a little less. A little less than beer. Not, I mean, we're only talking 20, 40, 60 calories per category here. But. So, but now you've got more, because now you've got Dr. Mayo here. I have Dr. Mayo. It's actually Dr. Michael Jensen. He's okay. an endocrine expert. He's an obesity researcher with the Mayo Clinic there okay. in, in Rochester, Minnesota. And this was, I, I thought, a very good quote. He says, in general, alcohol intake is associated with bigger waste because when you drink alcohol, and this is an interesting point, the liver burns alcohol instead of fat. Uh-huh. So basically, it puts all its energy into dealing with the alcohol. So not only are you getting extra calories in the alcohol, but you're not processing the right. fats that it would naturally be processing. Right. Okay. Uh, and, but... A typical beer is 150 calories, is what he says, but you don't often just drink one. You generally down several in one sitting if you're going out. So you got to think. Is he spying on us? We've been seeing me. Several is is the moderate number. Um, (laughs) So you can end up with a serious calorie overload. And then, as he says, don't forget the calories from foods you sometimes wash down with those beers. You mean the giant Mexican tostada salad with sour yes, cream, or the, guacamole, the, the giant cheddar fries, cheese? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, okay. the, the greasy stuff. So, yeah. um, so in essence, uh, he's saying that there's a reason why we call it a beer belly. Yeah, I, we need to check in with Cliff Clavin on beer bellies and see what he has to say <laughs> about that. So, I'm thinking, I'm thinking he might have a thought. Yeah, good. All right, we have another question. This is actually a good question too. This is from Theo Wong in Davis. Um, this is actually a beer and wine question. He says, are the ceremonies for serving wine just tradition? Or are there reasons why they do all that stuff? Yes. And, and then he says, with lots of beer coming in bombers, and we talked about that, so those are the 22-ounce bottles, 
Do you expect to see beer opening traditions? No. Let's start. Yeah, I I agree with you. So I'm going, the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Next question. Yes. Well, no, you have to tell them why. There are reasons for these things. So the answer is yes. Um, Those ceremonies do have a lot of uh, tradition. They are based on some things that are really no longer serious issues. Obviously, first tradition is they show you the bottle. You're supposed to make sure that the bottle you're buying, they're going to open for you, is the one you ordered. Okay, fair enough. They pull the capsule well, off. Well, let's, let's stop there for a second because one of the things that is a bit of an issue these days sometimes is do do look at the vintage. Look at the vintage. Or, Paul, in your case, yes. look at the color. Yes. Occasionally I have at least once agreed that, yes, that bottle of Chardonnay was the Merlot that I had ordered. <laughs> yes. Good, um, good, good, so, good yeah. for you. Your wife was along. That's right. Yes. So, yeah, you know, uh, identify that. But then they they take the capsule off. Um, cutting the capsule leaves that neck free, but it also keeps the neck from dripping a little bit if you cut it right. Mm-hmm. Then they pull the cork out, and when they pull the cork out, they put the cork on the table in front of you. Just leave it there, but it is to show you actually a couple of things. The most important one is that the cork should probably be from the same winery that made yes. the label so that, and, that and, somebody and, in the back isn't just relabeling stuff. And we have mentioned this in one of our history moments once before, right. that the whole point was you know, there was a time when some unscrupulous you know, uh, beer halls, restaurants were – this were a few years ago. Now we're they talking would just soak 1700s. labels off bottles and put the classy labels on the cheap bottles and yeah, serve the stuff. Or they would just refill the bottle and, right. and record because yeah. this was even before foils. Yeah. And so the wineries sort of get, started getting smart and started putting their names yeah. on the wine. Mm-hmm. So they give you the cork, uh, leave it there, and then they pour you a taste. Th- that part isn't just tradition. There's no. actually a reason for that because you're supposed to smell and taste the wine to make sure that it is correct, which means it doesn't have any obvious flaws, and B, it's the right temperature. And those are two things you taste for. So all of those little elements of the ceremony, are they are traditional. Um, and, of course, the wonderful tradition is that the original hosts were served the bottle first to show the other guests that he wasn't it, trying to poison them. It's why I pour for my friends first. So that That's why, yeah, it's why to, everybody orders beer at I your I want to make house, sure that right? they're not trying to poison me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, so there's also, you know, uh, uh, to expand on one of those points that Paul was making, too, is um, we don't talk about this. We talk about, you know, is there something wrong with the wine? And if you right. feel that there is, you should say something. Yeah. But the temperature matters, too. Yep. You know, there's a tendency yep. to, to, to serve wine, white wine, too cold. Yes, and red wine too warm. And red wine too warm. Now, yeah. the too cold is, is less of a problem because you can just let it sit there for a minute. Or but, serve it in those glasses with no stem and your and hand you hold will... it. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and But the, when the red is too warm, you know, we talk about room temperature. We're not talking about our 75-degree room temperature. Right. Although we're talking more about like our studio, which is about 65 degrees. But really, we're talking about, and when they said room temperature, we're talking about these old drafty chateaus. That's right. Because, you know, in that 55-ish range is really... 55 to 65 is a good range for right. for, for yeah. reds. They yeah. seem to hold together. So if your red is a little warm, you do what Paul does. Well, when it's too warm, the first thing I do is ask the restaurant if they'll put it in an ice bucket. But, and then they think he's crazy. And then my wife says, well, why don't you just bring us some ice? And she just puts a couple of cubes right in the wine. Yeah. See, there you go. And you know what? It works. It, it actually... Warm temperature is even a bigger issue today with these wines that are higher in alcohol. They mm-hmm. fall apart. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same structure, and they need the right temperature. And a warm wine with one of these big, rich, fat, high-alcohol wines can be a pretty unpleasant experience. Yeah. Yeah. So for beer, h- hard to imagine, you know, partly because uh, because it's generally poured. Although, although I will say this, actually. I will say this. In Germany, yep. there is a tradition. They got to get the head just right, just yes, right. Yes, they do. 
you know? yeah. and, and it is, you know, and, and so in some ways, each country has their own. I've, but, I've said But if you're ordering beer on tap, there's no ceremony. They're going to bring you the glass because the tap's over there at the bar and you're over at the table. No. There's no ceremony. You ordered this beer. There it is. But I, I do I do remember waiting thirstily for a beer in, in when I was in Germany a few years ago. And, and it was – I was waiting forever. Yeah. They were pouring a little more, a little less, a little yeah, more, a yeah, little yeah, less. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. going, you're throwing away perfectly good beer. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you Can know, I just have the leftovers? Yeah. Put them on the side. Um, and, and by the way, you know, uh, we have uh, I've talked over the years to a guy named Charlie Bamforth. Um, uh-huh. He is he teaches at UC Davis. His his uh-huh. title is the the uh, Anheuser Busch Endowed Chair of Malting and Brewing. Well, there you go. So he is he's a professor of beer, one of the most respected and yeah, in sure. the country, and a, and a really good guy. Yeah. And he has he's written a series of books about uh, beer, for, sort of for home beer brewers, but mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. for the industry as well. And and he makes a huge point about that the head needs to be correct. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that it is that a lot of the fa- flavor is in the foam. That he thinks foam mm. is such a huge part of the of the. Maybe uh, we should try. We should try to get our heads correct. Yes, and then yes. The rest I've been of called a foam head more than once. Um, <laughs> I don't think that had anything to do with <laughs> with um, the beer. Yeah. So, but you know, as Paul said, it's not not likely. Although I, you can see somebody presenting the the bomber on. Over their arm, with and, a white table, and, with a white napkin yeah, over their arm, right. and Wh- okay, whipping yeah. out the bottle opener and plopping open the the That's cap right. and presenting you the cap, and uh, <laughs> I think that would, <laughs> I think that would that would work just fine. Oh, brother! Probably not likely going to happen. Okay. Uh, that is it for mail. We are done with mail for the moment. Uh, if you'd like to ask us a question about wine or beer. Or beer. We can take a whack at either one of those. You can just go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word. Rick and Paul Wine. No bricks. Coming up, we have a St. Patrick's Day food and wine pairing for you. And I'm betting you can guess what it is. We'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's St. Patrick's Day. This is a wine show. We do what we can. So we thought, you know, whether you're drinking beer, well, beer you can handle. So we're going to do a food and wine pairing Yes. with the classic St. Patrick's Day food, corned beef and cabbage. Corned beef and cabbage. Yeah. And actually, I love corned beef and cabbage. So do I. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, it's the uh, the cabbage part too, to be honest. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so there, I think that there are a handful of wines that go really well with it. Okay, what do you pick? Well, there there's the there's an easy one. So I'm going to go in a slightly different direction, and I'm going to say Syrah. Okay, yeah, because that's the way you are. Yeah. You're, there's the easy direction, and then you're going to go in another direction. But I like I like Syrahs with it, and I'll tell you why. Um, Please you know, do. Yeah, especially, you know, and, and really, actually, um, the real Rhone Syrahs in particular, because there's a smokiness and an earthiness to them. Okay. And I think that smoke and earth really pick up the the a little bit of the tones of a really good corned beef, but also the cabbage. I like the cabbage, and uh-huh, I, I think uh-huh. that there's an earth in that cabbage, and I think Syrah goes really well with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... That's my argument. Yeah. And I actually am going to go the other way because don't ask me why, but I like something like a Gewürztraminer. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can um, see why. I can totally you, see why. You got you know the corned beef, which has some spice to it, right, and right, all right. the rest. And I just like the the fresher, lighter white wine. It can be a kind of heavy meal, and particularly if you like me, like a little extra horseradish on that corned beef to mm. perk it up a little bit. Yeah, then I, I think I you do. probably need something that's a little more refreshing than a big syrah. Yeah, so I'm well, going... if you're doing the horseradish, I would then say stay away from the syrah. We've talked about this before that you know. 
alcohol and spice are not a good they're not a good combo. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so there's a couple other directions and my easy one was going to be sparkling. Sure. For the same reason that beer goes well with it. Sure. Yeah, that uh, that sparkling is good. But you know, also I can make a Pinot Noir argument as well. Uh-huh. You can make any argument you'd like. Yeah, what you ultimately have to do is convince somebody. Well, okay, so let me see. Here's why I convince you. I think that because there's a freshness, it's like good some Pinots, they have the, their own little bit of snap to them too. And so yep. if it's not, once again, not particularly horseradishy, yep. I think that the Pinot pick us, will pick up a lot of the, the salt and the flavors in the, in the uh, corned beef. So all of those are good ideas. But in my house, if you come to my house on St. Patrick's Day and we're having corned beef and cabbage, we're not going to be drinking Syrah or Pinot Noir or Gewürztraminer. We're going to be drinking beer. We're drinking beer. That's true. We're going to be drinking beer because there are some things that God made that shouldn't be messed with. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's one of them. I was just doing that. So you know what? <laughs> when you have corned beef and it's not on St. Patrick's Day, maybe it, you, there you, go. you can try one of these things. Um, there and, you go. Uh, and don't put, don't put any, um, any, any green coloring in your... In anything. Especially your Ever. wine. I was going to say not reason. your wine. Yeah. 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 Not, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, well, that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineers, Matt Pacini, our award-winning screenwriter friend, Matt Pacini. And thank you to Capital Public Radio for the studio use, as always. And if you'd like to ask us a question, you can try beer as well because we're talking beer. But really, go with wine. Go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And remember, we're on iTunes. You can subscribe for free with just a click. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's that beer and wine can be friends. Just like us. Just like us. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines and beers you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us. 